Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians from around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of experience among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Jackie. Happy New Year, Galit. Um, goodbye 2020. Hello 2021. <laughs> Cross your fingers. It's gonna be better. Yeah, good riddance. Smell <laughs> you later. I need, I'm looking forward to a clean slate, fresh start, fresh start new page, mm-hmm. new narrative dynamic, mm-hmm. everything. Listen. I think we all deserve that. <laughs> And I think the best way to do that is with your read thread. Don't you think? Oh, yes. I <laughs> New colors, new me, new you. <laughs> this is a hot topic. This is like, it got political. It really did. It did. When we posted to our social media. So Jackie, I want to know first before we get into these highly controversial opinions. Um, what are your good luck and bad luck thread colors? Well, it's interesting because I don't depend on thread color so much provided it is double F nylon thread, which I think is traditionally an oboe. Oh, that's right. Um, But I have found that I really like using that on my bassoon reads. And once I stumbled upon that, color hasn't impacted things quite so much. Although I am a big fan of the, is it pronounced variegated? Mm-hmm. Is that how you pronounce it? That's how I pronounce it. So that's how it's pronounced. Almost every thread color, thread, almost every <laughs> thread thread color I have is some form of variegation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know. I guess maybe variegation is my good luck, and solid colors are my bad luck. Well, same for me too. Actually, solid colors snap on me more. And you know, us oboists, we tie with such tension like we do everything else with every time it breaks i punch myself in the chest (laughs) but to answer the fundamental question yellow tends to be my absolute worst and i think i'm one of the few people on the planet where hot pink will make me some really nice reads yeah i can't deal with hot pink (laughs) hot pink is garbage also green garbage well medium garbage garbage light (laughs) but i do love some variegated thread i've had really good luck with all this squirrely stash variegation i've got going on yeah um 
we asked our friends on Instagram and it got heated. Lots of uh, diversity in the responses here. Mm -hmm. So Jen Case has an amazing story. Here it is. I was working at Oboe Works when rice thread stopped spooling reed thread for us. We sold out of every color except brown. We had a high school student come into the shop to buy his first reed making kit. I was talking him through everything in the kit and then we got to the thread. I said, unfortunately, we currently only have brown thread in stock. He looked at me confused. He said, but it's just color, right? It doesn't really matter, right? I paused, contemplating telling him he clearly wasn't an oboist and lied. Yes, it's only a thread color. <laughs> you will learn in time, young one. Young, poor, unfortunate soul. <laughs> oh, to be young and so naive. Although I do have to say, I have this espresso bar thread that is brown, neutral toned, and it's giving me fabulous reads. So maybe not all is lost. Perhaps. You are not the only oboist for whom neon colors are uh, an Achilles heel. Tim Gocklin says, I have never, ever been able to make a good read using neon thread. And Courtney Miller agrees that neon, though she loves bright colors, is not her friend. Um, Andrea agrees with me that she can't make a read with pink thread to save her life. Same, Andrea. But then Liz Cook Tashone says that pink works the best for her. Interesting. Maybe she's got all the good pink vibes. Liz. Andy says, I have a gorgeous teal thread that has only produced disastrous reads, like wavy tip, crack down the middle, sounds like a dollar store kazoo nonsense read. <laughs> Which is, maybe it's time to just throw that teal thread <laughs> First. Oh, Stefan Levex says green don't work at all. Jessica says, blue, it doesn't matter what shade it is, the reads never quite work right, which introduces the variable of shade. And is there a distinction between a light version of a particular color and a dark? I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes, too. Kirsten says not to get political or anything, but variegated thread causes looseness. Get out of here. <laughs> I'll take it. It also causes joy and easily distinguishable reads of the same thread type, which is very nice when you've just made a batch. Megan says, the prettier the read, the better it sounds, which is probably because I subconsciously give the prettier reads more attention. Mm. The halo effect is <laughs> applicable to reads as well as people, apparently. <laughs> Oh, well, happy new year, everyone. We wish you the most beautiful reads, the strongest threads, the prettiest color combos, and good sounds. Good sounds. Let's do this. Let's do this 2021. <laughs> Barton Cane offers a huge variety of GSP cane. Leave the cane processing to them. 
Use coupon code Double Read Dish Rocks My World for free shipping on your next Barton Kane order. www.bartonkane.com. Founded by Logan Esterling, Read Design is pushing the boundaries of oboe and English horn reed making. They take the knowledge they've collected from hundreds of reeds and, with the power of machine learning, derive patterns and trends that accurately predict the characteristics of finished reeds while early in the sorting process. The result is quality reeds with characteristics you can count on. Using their products will save you valuable time and let you get back to what you love, making music. Visit www.readdesign.io to learn more. That's R-E-E-D-E-S-I-G-N dot I-O. We are so happy to welcome to the podcast Gabriel Beavers, Associate Professor of Bassoon at the University of Miami Frost School of Music. Welcome to Double Read Dish. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. This is a lot of fun. I enjoy your your work, and I'm honored to be a part of it. I feel like I've made it because I'm on Double Read Dish. Yes, thank you. It's on the record. Uh, We always love to start by asking our guests how they began studying their instruments. So could you tell us how you began playing the bassoon? Yeah, uh, I mean, I grew up in rural North Alabama. um, And I played some piano, I played saxophone, and I had um, a very motivated and uh, tenacious band director. His name's David McDaniel. He's not retired yet. I, I just looked him up today because I thought it might come up. Apparently he's teaching in Oxford, Alabama. Um, I don't even know where that is and I'm from Alabama, but he was just fantastic and he wanted to build a great program. And he, and he took a couple of us who were maybe less than completely motivated on our instruments, but had some talent and, and, and do what band directors do, suggest that we start the bassoon. And um, my friend and I, um, Gregory Peebles, who later became a member of the group Shanti Claire, actually, as their countertenor. I love them. Yeah, I started. We started bassoon at the same time, and um, Greg then like um, went over to oboe, and I stayed on bassoon. And um, my band director was right. I, it motivated me. I wanted to. I think I liked that it was a little different. I also wanted to join orchestra because I loved film music. I loved all the John Williams scores and things like that. And so um, it was put to me that, look, there's no saxophones in orchestra. And if you want to be a pianist, you've got to get way better if before you're going to solo with the orchestra. Bassoon's a really good vehicle for that. And um, he was right. I, I just through kind of self-taught and, you know, the, the one tutoring session with somebody, I, I made the the Alabama Allstate Orchestra. And there, there's where I met my first teacher, Malcolm Crawford, who was the um, bassoon professor at the University of Alabama at the time. And uh, it just, it was, it was it. I was hooked. I, I eventually got to play in the Huntsville Youth Orchestra. And that was everything. I mean, I had been doing music since I was nine, playing piano and playing saxophone at 11, singing in church, doing all the things that kids do. And so like bassoon was just another vehicle for musical expression but it was one that was like really unique to me because nobody else was doing it in my little town 
And the fact that I could make all state, I mean, you know, I probably on another instrument at that time wouldn't have made it because it, it was, it was obviously less competitive, but I got to play with some really good kids and that just kept me, kept me motivated and going. And then I, you know, went to some, a couple of great summer festivals and uh, met um, a Boston freelancer named Gregory Newton, who um, uh, suggested Matt Ruggiero to me. And that was life-changing. I met Mr. Ruggiero and I was a kid who was somewhat academically inclined. Um, I call him Mr. Ruggiero because I was too ignorant. I didn't know that he had a PhD when I studied with him at first. And then I was too embarrassed to change, to call him to Dr. Ruggiero and he had never corrected me. It was, you know, and so uh, Greg Newton had suggested I audition at all the places Matt taught and I ended up at BU and I always respected that he was a person of great mind and um, he seemed to like that I had some, you know, good test scores and was pretty good at school and all that. Sorry, that's a little bit more than you asked me, but that's how I got started. I love it. Well, can you keep walking us through your training and educational journey and how, when did you decide to become a professional bassoonist and that path? Yeah, so... um, you know, I liked bassoon and I, I think I wanted to do music from an early age. And, and like, as I said before, this, this little town in Alabama that I'm from, um, this band director had fostered this um, incredible program where he took it very seriously. This wasn't a like kind of extracurricular activity. This was life. You, you did this and you did it right. And you, we, my friends and I played in the pit, did the pit percussion and we arranged the parts for the marching show because they had paid some arranger to do the show, but then they were like, you guys can take the score and write the pit. So, I mean, I got some uh, practical skills and reading a score and arranging there and played piano too. I even uh, played piano at a small church for $25 a week that I used, I gave my mom the money to drive me down to Alabama two hours away and pay the bassoon teacher to give me lessons and reads and all that. So I was really invested in doing music. And I, I don't know, I think at one time, maybe I wanted to be a band director or something like that. And I went to Brevard and I studied with uh, Greg Newton and Darlene Jusilo. And they kind of put me onto the idea that, hey, you know, you got a shot at going, maybe expanding your uh, search for schools, expanding your career goals. And that's when I decided, I think it was Brevard. I mean, I think like so many, it doesn't matter if it's Brevard or Swanee or Aspen. Well, Aspen's probably not a high school festival. Brevard, Swanee, Marrowstone, high school, Blue Lake. I'm sure so many of us have those kind of stories where you do a summer where you can focus just on your music and you're like, oh my God, this is it. I've got Mine was Lucerne. This. There you go. So, yeah. and that's, that's what happened to me. And then I just became intently focused. That was summer between junior and senior year. And I just became crazy focused on, I, I got to be a musician. So that that's how I got, got onto it. And it, it really motivated me to have somebody tell me that you, you've got a shot at it, like a real shot. And you should, I, I don't know if they said I had a shot at a career, but they, they were like, you have a shot at getting into a good school with a scholarship. Cause we, we didn't have a lot of money and uh, something like going to Boston university would have seemed impossible. Quite frankly. Um, I don't, I, I don't think at the time my mom made as much as the tuition cost. Um, it, things have changed quite a bit since then. I don't want to, I, I definitely am more privileged than some, but uh, it, but it, it was amazing. The bassoon could give me that, you know, and that, that's how that put me onto it. So when I first went to 
Boston. I mean, I just wanted to be like Matt Ruggiero. I wanted to be like Richard Svoboda or Rick Ranty. I just wanted a job in a big orchestra. That's what I wanted. And and then uh, other things came along as I went through my educational journey. And uh, I found this career as a professor as well. And um, I'd like to say I didn't know I wanted that. But I years ago, I actually found a paper I wrote for admissions for college. And oddly enough, in my application letters, I said that I wanted to be a professor. And I think it was because I just was modeling my high school teacher. And I'd forgotten about that. It's so amazing that my dream at 18 years old came true. That's awesome. Whenever we have um, people who are students of these great bassoonists who are no longer with us, we like to ask them about their experience. And you are actually the first Ruggiero student besides me to appear on the podcast. And so I would love to uh, have you share with our listeners your experience in learning from Matthew Ruggiero. And uh, yeah, talk to us about him. Oof, that's yeah. I mean, we could make a podcast about that, I think. And, and um, <laughs> uh, so I, I was really fortunate that at, at Brevard, the, the faculty there had told me about Matt um, and, and pointed out that he teached at, taught at so many places in Boston. So I could go audition at the different places and then make my decision if I got into to each of them. And um, all I knew is he was assistant principal in the Boston Symphony. And so when I, when I told my um, high school teacher about him, my high school teacher goes over to his stack of books and pulls out um, International Double Read Society journal and there's been several things written on matt over the years i encourage everybody to go find them and they're all fascinating uh and he pulls out the article from when sherman walt retired and it has the two of them standing back to back and i i forget it's just very eloquent writing by matt talking about eulogizing sherman walt and then on top of that talking about that matt had went and got a degree in italian literature at that time i don't think he had completed his phd when that article had been written and just all that intrigued me and then i flew up to boston and and this is okay so that was my first airplane flight <gasps> yeah which is amazing wow. to me because i mean i've been all over the world now but i was 17 and that was the first time i'd ever been on an airplane oh my god yeah. 17 i would have been I, terrified i was <laughs> <laughs> and it's hard to it's hard to believe because i've probably been on hundreds of flights since then um but yeah and so I flew up and we, I remember I couldn't make the traditional audition day or if BU even had those back then. So I meet Matt and he doesn't, he's a little older um, than, than his pick, you know, because he, he was, and he was just so amazing and refined and quiet. And he had this quiet confidence about him that, you know, immediately you're like, I'm going to do whatever this man tells me to do. Cause I can, he just, he knows his stuff and, and, I, and whatever. And he never talked about, all those other things that I had to learn about from other people that he'd gotten these other degrees that he had retired from the symphony and went back and got a, he'd gotten a degree in Italian literature while he was in the symphony and then retired and then got a PhD in comparative literature. And, um, you know, he just didn't talk about himself. You had to, it was like, you had to get it from somewhere else, but what was it like to study with him? I learned quickly. He made me grow up a little bit, quite frankly. Um, he made me come into lessons without making me. He just challenged me on a daily basis, whether it was my grammar, which I hope you wouldn't be disappointed at me now because that's probably regressed, um, to he would ask me a question about the music. And if I wasn't prepared, he, you know, he, he would make sure I felt the... It was never 
cross. It's hard to explain. I mean, Jackie, you know, I mean, it, he never was cross with me, but I felt the disappointment that I wasn't, that I didn't know the answer to the question that he asked. And what I think is he taught me to look at music in a certain way that allows me to, on the fly, infer the harmony of what I'm looking at. So I feel really great. Anything I play that's not atonal or post-tonal or whatever, anything that's traditional music, I feel like he endowed me with a set of tools through those weekly lessons where I can pretty much tell you there's an appoggiatura, here's a passing tone, here is, and it, it allows me to start from a place of being very musical in an informed way uh, right at the beginning of starting a work. And then I can go confirm or have my conception challenge with the score later uh, that, okay, well, maybe I, my assumption there was kind of wrong, you know, looking at just the bassoon part. Um, and that was primary in studying with him. That was that, that overrid everything else. But what's, I remember another thing that was interesting about studying with Matt was that I didn't think of him as somebody who had a lot of emphasis on technique. I thought when I went to grad school, I needed somebody who was going to work on technique. I was wrong. I had chops when I came out of undergrad. What I needed was, I needed somebody to refine me for sort of the stuff that, that, that wasn't as important to Matt. You know, Matt didn't focus on some of the really little details because he was so concerned about working on my mind that then I went and studied with somebody who was all about, well, this note's not right length and, and, uh, and this note's out of tune and Gabriel, you got to do this. And, and that's my other great mentor was Wilfred Roberts, who I think took what Matt had put, helped put in me and then put it into a package that was polished that I could take out in the world and shop, shop to the world. And it's like those two, two men were like um, the right, two halves of a puzzle to help me add up to some early career success. Um, and I'm just trying to think of other things about my, one of my, my favorite anecdote about him is that I tell a lot to my students is I only got to hear Matt Ruggiero play one live concert. I found out, I didn't think he invited me. I found out he was playing Schubert Octet at Longy with a lot of the top freelancers in town. Um, and so I went and I show up and I, I, eagerly run backstage to congratulate him on it. And he's polishing his 201. I remember he had a really fancy 201 and a first time I ever saw a Kim Walker bag and he's meticulously cleaning it. It's just like his appearance. He like kept everything really nice. And he looks up over his glasses and he goes, why aren't you practicing? <laughs> and th that was the other thing. I being from rural Alabama, nothing. I mean, people from rural Alabama are awesome. Don't get me wrong. Love y'all. Um, but I just didn't get his humor. He had this dry sense of humor that at first I thought he was, I have to admit, I kind of thought he was mean. And I, once I got it, he kept me like laughing for the next two and a half years after I figured out his humor and it was amazing. Um, and so I can't, I can't say enough good things about him. I think that I was able to become a professor because of him. I think that the tools he endowed me with to, think about the music to look at the harmony to understand the context and story made me be able to go be a teacher even though i didn't go along that path initially that wasn't what i said i had some early success with with orchestra and um yeah so i i, I can't say enough and i'm sure there's more stories in there no yeah i he seemed to care very much about um fostering the entire mind of the student. And I remember once he asked me about my interests and I went into this list of musical bassoon oriented things. And he said, 
Jackie, there is much more to life than music. <laughs> and I remember he, it was a little like, yeah, disappointed that I didn't have a book to speak about, or I didn't, you know, uh, something that gave me more depth than just like, you know, the bassoon was important. I was training on the bassoon, but it was also important that I go see things and read things and look at things and contemplate things. And uh, yeah, definitely. I think he's unique in that way. I just have so many good stories and I tell them all the time. Like my, one of them is when my students are late for a lesson, I like to talk about he, he had such a subtle way of, and we had another member of the studio who apparently showed up their lesson late a lot and Matt wasn't there. And the student, he waited for the student to have the audacity to complain. And he was like, I was here, but I go and get a coffee when you're not here. And then I come back. So, so, so I was always on time because I was afraid he would kick me out of the studio because that, that is what happened to the other person. Ooh. And um, there was these church pew kind of benches right outside of the fourth floor. We, we had just like this room that he had a key to. And he always wanted a really early lesson, like early, like way earlier than I was comfortable. It was either 8 or 9 a.m. or something. And I would lay down. I would get there early and kind of like lay on the bench. And Matt would come up and go, he would be like, don't get up on my account or something like that. Like, <laughs> so there's something like that. And then I have in common the story about him throwing his leg out the window. I don't know if you wrote that in the tribute or if that was Stephanie, but he did the same thing with me, put his leg up on the window when I'd start in the wrong part of the phrase and go, Gabriel Beavers, if you start in the wrong place again, I'm going to jump out this window. What's it going to look like? Bassoon <laughs> professors flying out windows. <laughs> Or if you did something right after his advice, he'd go, $5. Yes. <laughs> and, I, and I shamelessly steal that all the time. I, I say like, $5 all the time. My, my version of that is when a student has a revelation, I'll be like, that's why my name is on the door. <laughs> so I've adapted that a little bit from him. But um, I'm, 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 the, the, I'm the imitation, not the original. So... He, he was a, a special, special person, um, and I'm very fortunate. And it's it's amazing, too, I think, when something like that happens, when somebody is able to pair a student with a teacher so perfectly, and even the student doesn't really know when it's happening. Like when, when Greg Newton recommended Matt Ruggiero to me, I think he understood that it was a really good idea for me, but he didn't let that on to me. He didn't like tell me, you know, well, you're this way and he's that way. And you'll no, he just let me discover that on my own. And I actually don't think it hit till like later when I started teaching, when I finally started teaching I had a couple of, um, when I say started teaching, I started teaching in 99 at a high school level, uh, in Coppell, Texas, um, which were amazing students, by the way, uh, I was fortunate to inherit from the, the previous teacher there. Um, some like world-class high school, all state bassoon kids. But um, when I first started teaching at the college level, I remember thinking about Matt. Oh, my God. He was so patient with me in a way that I haven't learned yet. Because, I, mean, I, I mean, I remember doing the Jean-Pierre and I would like conveniently forget it. At home. Oh, I forgot my book. <laughs> my, my students can't do that to me because unlike Matt, who was adjunct and didn't have a permanent <laughs> office, I have a filing cabinet. So I can just open it and then drop it on their stand. <laughs> Well, these days you can just pull it up on IMSLP. You know what I, I mean? Know. You're like, yeah. oh, let's hold it. Give me a second. I'll download it. <laughs> yeah, there's no excuses now. And, uh, and even then, I mean, he showed great patience for, I remember once he told me a story about raising his children and he said, 
And, and, and I remember feeling about this tall when he told me that I'd had a bad lesson, like a really bad one. And he goes, Gabriel, we're going to call this a growing day. When our children were growing up, I forget it. I, I, I'm going to mess it up because I can't speak as... <clears throat> but it basically was like, you know, when you have kids, there's just some days that they just are having a day and that they chalk it up to a growing experience. And I mean, he's talking about his little kids and I'm like <laughs> 20. And, you know, I was prepared the next week and he didn't have to yell or scream or like histrionics or whatever. It was just that and I got it taken care of. So great. <laughs> and then I went to study with Will Roberts, who is one of the most meticulous people on the planet. I mean, it, that was such a great um, um, segue because I went from Matt to like Will, who I remember studying uh, and Will's only recently retired. And I encourage anybody if you're in the Dallas area and you want to learn about the orchestral repertoire, uh, see if you can get a lesson with Will post pandemic, of course. But I mean, I would go to warm up for Will. Like I'd go to play a couple of notes and I would do the typical flash and trash things kids do when they're warming up. And Will would be like, no, 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 Gabriel, stop, stop. <laughs> you know? And I'd be like, well, what? I'm just playing notes. He's like, play that B flat again. And I'm like, I just played it. And he's like, nope, we're going to do B flat. And it was just the perfect thing I needed after Matt. I just had to sit there and play B-flats for 20 minutes until I could center the pitch on it. Then I was allowed to play the music for the lesson. And um, so uh, my teaching is imbued with both of them and many others. So I'm loving hearing all these stories. It reminds me so much of my lessons with Bert Lucarelli as an undergrad. He always, you know, if you came in unprepared, he'd be like, well, I think we're gonna I think we're gonna read some Bach cantatas today. <laughs> Usually when a student comes in unprepared, we'll just read some Bach sonatas and you're like, oh no. <laughs> well, that's pretty effective punishment, I think. He's like, let's do something that I wanna do, since you didn't do what you had to do. <laughs> I've become more and more compassionate, I think, as I, over the years that in the early days of teaching, I, I, I was probably more, and now I'm more like, well, what's going on? You know, like, I don't know. I think it, you have to, to survive a little bit, I think mm -hmm. after a while, but, but wow, that's, yeah, at least you learned to sight read, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a perfect segue since you talk about teaching. Can you take us further in your professional journey and talk about how you got to your current position at the Frost School of Music? Yeah, so I, I'm very fortunate. I, 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 I got a job really young. I was very young. I was 24, and I got a one-year position at the University of Missouri. And that came about um, one-year uh, visiting assistant professor position. And that came about because at SMU, I did my master's at SMU with Wilford Roberts. Um, I took a wonderful uh, pedagogy class with Alan Wagner. And uh, I don't think he's teaching there anymore, but he did a great job. I, I really feel like I learned a lot about teaching and a lot about college, college teaching in that class. And this is at the master's level. And one of our, um, like the music education professors, Jim Odie, was a guest for a unit on resumes and CVs and had us do cover letters. And, um, and it's an assignment I do with my, my um, pedagogy and lit class here at Frost. And I did it at LSU. Um, I, I, I take that same assignment and replicate whether they're undergrad, master's or doctorate, we all do it. 
because it can come in later if you're going to go on to get a terminal degree and you still use the same information. And so Dr. Odie was like, hey, you did a good job on this assignment. And I hear your master's recital was pretty good. Why don't you put these things together and apply to this job at the University of Missouri that's in this month's CM, uh, CMS? So I did, and I got the job. And I fell into that so easily. And I obviously had some aptitude for it, or it wouldn't have happened, that I don't think I, I kind of took it for granted, I think. And I learned a lot at Missouri that year. This was in 2001. And what a formative year. I mean, this was during 9-11. And uh, I mean, a lot of stuff, world stuff happened then. And um, I kind of took it for granted because it, it happened so easily for me. And I'd always wanted to play in orchestra. And I re-auditioned for the New World Symphony. I'd been a finalist um, while I was at Missouri. I was in a one year. So I knew I needed to hustle and try to find something else. Well, I got into New World Symphony. And so that was great. I'm going to go from Missouri to the New World Symphony. And um, then on a lark, I took the second bassoon audition in Milwaukee. And I, I attribute, I won a one-year position, second bassoon in Milwaukee. So I actually had to not go to New World and go to Milwaukee. And I attribute that win at uh, Milwaukee to being in Columbia, Missouri, and being so young that I couldn't really relate to the other awesome faculty who were great mentors. But I was I couldn't hang out with the students because that's inappropriate. And I was kind of lonely and just practiced a lot and made a ton of reads. And I was ready for the audition in, in Milwaukee. And it was almost like second nature. Like, and because I had just won new world or got the fellowship at new world, I, I didn't feel a lot of pressure. It was like, Oh, this is just be a fun audition in my whole career. That seems to be when I've done the best is when they're, when I don't need it, but instead it's something I'm doing for the joy of it. And then the musicianship comes out. And so I went to Milwaukee for a year for a one year position and then re-auditioned for new world and went to new world for three years, got a one year in the Virginia symphony, which was wonderful. I'm talking about a fantastic orchestra with Joanne Folletta. I learned a lot there. She's I incredible. She really is. And we're yeah. fortunate that she's at, uh, has an affiliation with Sewanee now um, and is doing great things when she comes in to conduct at Sewanee. That's, that's one of the summer festivals I teach at. And um, so that was about a five-year span of my life. And I had done the whole like a finals of a lot of places, uh, long-term trials in some places. And I was even offered a fourth year in the New World Symphony. I had a decision to stay for a fourth year. And, and the fourth year is like a, you have to make a special application and have a reason that you're staying for a fourth year. And I was fortunate that my reason was signed off on and I was able to stay for fourth year. But then I won the one year in Virginia and, and I realized like that was a pretty important experience. I needed to go be principal bassoon of, a, of an orchestra. That, after that five year span, I was like, started to think about college teaching. And I actually, while I was in New World, became a finalist for a, a small job in the Midwest that I ended up not getting. And I understand why there were some things I needed to work on in my interview chops. And then I found out through the grapevine that LSU sort of had a profile in, in mind of, of the kind of person they were looking for. They wanted somebody with professional experience, blah, 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 whatever. I put my name in the hat and fortunately was a finalist at LSU and it really appealed to me because I knew that the Baton Rouge Symphony would be open. I'm always grateful to Bill Ludwig for when he resigned at LSU, he also resigned the Baton Rouge Symphony because that made it a really attractive package and they are not commingled. Like you have to win both. So I fortunately won LSU and went there and um, then had to audition against some of Bill's former graduate students behind a screen. I was like, God, this is going to be, this is going to make me really nervous. I've got to try to win 
this local job and here I'm coming from a Ixom orchestra and, and I did win and it was great. And I spent six great years in the Baton Rouge symphony. Well, my story from going from LSU to Miami is I just gotten tenure at LSU. I was getting ready to settle in and be like, I had visions in my head of being like Bill or John Patterson. It's like, you're, you're at the later years where you either leave or retire. And you're like a, you've been there for, you're like synonymous with that. And the Miami thing came open and my wife and I have a connection to this town and it just made sense for me to throw my hat in the ring down here. And it worked out. I got the gig and I've been here for eight years. And, you know, that's it's it's been a really interesting and great journey that's that's resulted in some cool creative product. And I've had some amazing students and, you know, that's that's how it is. So you've done both orchestral playing, higher ed teaching sometimes at the same time. And I feel like sometimes we as musicians feel like we have to choose almost between those two paths. And I'd be interested in hearing about your your mindset and how you approached your career in a way that allowed you to go comfortably between these two areas and your yeah, how you approached that in terms of your career. I love how you say comfortably. <laughs> oh it's okay. aspirational. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'll say one of the things, the worst thing somebody can say to me, and I used to be really defensive about it, and I've learned to just kind of let it roll off my back, so to speak. I've, I've had over the years people who aren't in our business, or maybe they're really young, like a student or, or a parent or something, go, well, well uh, you know, the people who are real players, or, or, or they say they kind of put us in the other box because we're professors, you know, or I'll be like, well, what, you know, what is it? Would you rather play or something? I was like, I do play. I play in like four orchestras. I mean, I, I I'm fortunate because I'm in a major metropolitan area that I'm actually playing almost the equivalent of a of a kind of small regional orchestra that's full time uh, between all my stuff. But even if I wasn't doing that when I was at LSU and really only playing a Baton Rouge Symphony, the beauty of a college teaching job is the creative freedom it gives you, and it's like. I can decide that I want to record a concerto with an orchestra. If you're in an orchestra, that's not as easy because you're in an orchestra. If you're not, like you can have the time to plan and, and write grants and do all that kind of stuff. So I am a player. It informs my teaching. And I still play, I'll go play substitute third bassoon with the Utah Symphony or substitute third bassoon with Naples. Um, and it's like, yeah, I'm playing a supportive role. And I learned so much from that when I go and sub with a really high level orchestra like that, because I learned really quick that my read skills have gotten rusty. You know, like if I can't make an entrance as well as a fantastic, like if I'm playing with Kristen Sonnenborn and she's playing and she comes in as pianissimo and I'm like, oh man, I got to go back to the hotel room and brush up this read so I can match her. If I'm playing with Lori Wyke, I've like, I've got to be able to play the way they play and that I, I always get more ammunition for my lessons and my chamber coachings when I do that. So playing informs my teaching and practical. I think about like, what's our title? We're applied faculty. Well, I've got to go play in order to apply it. And the good and the bad and the ugly all help me learn. Uh, you know, that we've all learned from when the conductor gives you people can't see this on the podcast, but I'm conducting in zoom and they give you this as your entrance. <laughs> and you're like, that's, what? that's a better lesson than somebody telling you, you need to learn to play, you know, come in perfectly in tune, pianissimo on an F sharp. Uh, and so I can't not play it, it. It, if I 
take too much time off of playing, whether it be chamber music or orchestra or whatever, I feel like my teaching suffers because of it. And I actually get easier on the students. And I'm not a, I'm not a hard charging teacher. I really believe in um, building intrinsic motivation in the students. Um, you know, I think that, yes, if, if you're a student that needs me to constantly, uh, pardon my language, but they say, I want, I want a teacher that can kick my butt. And it's like, well, the problem is when you're an adult, that's not really the way the world works. You know, you've, you've got to want to do it for you because in the real world, if you're not doing well, nobody really tells you. And then suddenly there's an uncomfortable conversation with the, the dean or the personnel manager or something. They don't go, hey, man, get your stuff in gear. No, that doesn't work that way. So I really try to instill in my students that you've got to be motivated. And I find that when I don't play, I tend to go easier on them. And when I play more often, I feel like I'm more meticulous whether it's a mildew etude or Weissenborn or, or even a new piece of music. I mean, it, 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 it the, my play, even that new music, gosh, if I'm going to teach them to do music, new music and I'm not doing it. So I, I feel like, yeah. Um, so how do I navigate it back and forth? I, I do enjoy the fact that because I did have some success winning some one year positions and making finals for some other things, I have to admit, I have traded on that in my career a little bit. Um, that is a unique, not a unique, but that is a, I'm fortunate that that happened for me. And I feel like I can relate that experience to students. With college teaching, I, I remember being in my 20s and I did really well with a good amount of effort, but not, not a exhausting every part of my being kind of effort. Mm. And academia taught me how to do that. Mm. Not playing in an orchestra. It's like, there's something about knowing that there's a deadline in six years, you're either going to get tenure or you're, you know, I don't mean to like trigger anybody by talking about this because anybody has been in academia knows, mm -hmm. but there's something knowing that that's coming and every day. You've got to wake up on your own and decide, well, what am I doing towards um, my creative and or scholarly output? And then when you do get a project that you got funded, uh, in my case, it's my solo albums and you had to contract the musicians and you had to make it all happen when it's so important to you that it's several late nights of listening to edits or writing program notes or, and all of it's going to be packaged and put out there with your name on it. I learned how to be disciplined through that more than I did through trying to play the marriage of Figaro perfectly. It's another great segue into another great topic, your recording history. You've oh. done some really great albums, and I'd love to hear about, you know, especially your most recent one. Tell us about your projects that you'd love to connect our listeners with. Oh, thank you. Um, the one that just came out has been, it's called Swagger. That was the choice of calling the album that was my idea, but the choice of the name was not my idea. Um, I commissioned a work by my esteemed colleague, Charles Norman Mason, for amplified bassoon, brass quintet, and percussion, because I'd had this long desire to do something with the bassoon mic'd. Um, but on, in the last couple of years, I have jumped on the bandwagon that some other trailblazers have st clearly established, like Paul Hansen and those guys, and, and adopted some of these um, uh, amplified bassoon techniques. And that's because Rob Bradshaw had wrote a piece, Robert J. Bradshaw wrote a piece for me called The Miracle of Lascaux that uses guitar pedal effects and distortion bassoon and all that. Well, because I'd kind of got into it, somebody finally listened to me about, 
I want an amplified bassoon piece. The microphone bassoon piece with brass came long before I was interested in distorted bassoon. This is something I've been thinking about for a long time. And um, Swagger by Charles Norman Mason, which lends its name to the album, is him sort of taking the conversation we had about that I've been sitting in the bassoon section all these years with the brass mowing us down, blowing wall of sound behind us, and we play with them. But we can't be heard, but we're sort of a color in the sound. And I thought, well, what would it be like if you amplified the bassoon and let us play along? If the bassoon is such a complement to the brass, as as the, uh, the orchestration folks would have us believe, couldn't that work? Couldn't it be like Shostakovich, but I'm the loud person? And Chuck Mason just, he liked the idea and he put his own spin on it with his, he has this real rhythmic writing style, uh, really interesting music. He even did a digital version for me because he knew it might be hard to get um, the brass quintet played. And so the album coalesced around those two works, the Swagger by Charles Norman Mason and the Miracle of Lascaux by Robert J. Bradshaw. I had asked Rob when I first came to Frost to write a piece for me incorporated sort of rock and roll influences because two reasons i'd already been playing that moods and blue piece by um gerno wolfgang and i'd already been playing the james lawson strange interlude piece and i loved both of those and i've always loved blues and rock and roll and that kind of thing so i said well man, it'll be cool i could give a recital with those pieces and put uh, a new work by rob bradshaw on it and rob agreed to write the piece for me but he's the one who decided to amplify it and put effects and it just sort of changed everything. I had originally wanted to put Rob's piece on my second CD, A Quirky Dream, and it just didn't fit. It not, not in a bad way, but it was just going to blow the rest of the pieces um, dynamically out of the water, not a qualitative or like in a quality way, but like just it was so different. And I was like, I need to think to the future and make another project around that. Well, I had two great pieces. Um, Rob Bradshaw and Chuck Mason. So then I commissioned my former colleague, um, Brett Dietz, to write a piece for me. I didn't give him any instructions except for to say, write a piece for amplified bassoon and percussion, and I want to play it with you. And that was it. And the the title, the everything, that's him. He did all that. And it's a really cool, groovy piece. Uh, he explores the, some conspiracy theory stuff, which is kind of weird for me. And I was like, okay. Um, the music's great, though. Um, and, you know... I, I didn't know that was going to become such a part of the national conversation. And, and honestly, I hesitate to even bring it up and promoting it. Cause I don't want people to think my album's about that. The album's about great music. Um, and I don't think he's promoting it. He's exploring it like a documentary kind of thing. Like here's this guy that wrote this stuff long before this was ever happening. And now it's part of the national conversation. And then the last piece on the CD, Oh, that's has the ominous title. Behold a pale horse. Um, <laughs> And um, the last piece on the CD is Quintentino by Paul Hayden. And Paul wrote that um, for the Tim Woodwind Quintet, which is the Woodwind Quintet in residence at LSU. It's the, the Woodwind faculty. And uh, Paul Hayden is um, the spouse of Catherine Kimmler, the flute professor. And Paul's written a lot of great stuff. I mean, his saxophone pieces, his saxophone concerto is specifically what inspired me to ask Paul for a concerto. And he wrote Simple Serenades for me, which is on my second album. Um, and I wanted to include Paul in this project because he and Charles Norman Mason are classmates. And it's the Quintantino is the only piece on this new album, Swagger, that's not for amplified bassoon. But Paul uses 
um, this like brassy effect. When you first hear me play on that, I play this thing where I'm, I'm, I've worried that people take it wrong because I get on the tip of the reed and I go, what, 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 what? And it's like, it sounds like I'm just being a pig. Like I just don't care about tone or anything, but that's the point. It's like distortion bassoon without distortion. He calls it brassy effect. And it's named after the effect in the Pascal Galois book. And then there's multiphonics, which to me reminds is reminiscent of the effects pedals in um, Bradshaw's piece with the fifths and that kind of thing. So I thought, well, that's cool. There's tie in there. And I also wanted to collaborate with my longtime summer colleagues at the Tennessee Valley Music Festival. Um, that's a little uh, summer festival that I do for the Huntsville Youth Orchestra, which was my youth orchestra as a kid. And the other faculty are all super accomplished in and of themselves. Uh, from and there, we all have a tie to that region, but have went off. Some have come back there. Some are still live away, but all John Gaddis and Andy Hudson and Jen Case and Carolyn um, Totaro. We all have a tie to the sort of Tennessee Valley area, but we've also had careers elsewhere. And I just love hanging with those guys in the summer and playing. And I wanted to sort of um, put that into a um, a project. And this this was the perfect thing. So Swagger came out August first. Um, I hope people will go listen. It's it's available in all the places, but you also can buy it at the Beauport Classical website. And I think that would be great if Beauport Classical is a label. um, It's like a cooperative label of new music. um, And I hope people will go to their website and not only listen to my project, but some of the other new music projects that are on there as well. Speaking of new music, another thing I wanted to ask you about is your involvement in the New Deco Ensemble, specifically the approach to, you know, thwarting expectations of genre and your experiences in that ensemble. Okay. So this album is tied to that. I'm a founding member. And when I say founding member, I mean, I just played the first concert. Like I don't, I didn't have any hand in creating new deco ensemble that that's Giacomo Byros and Sam Hyken. And the way I was invited to the dance, so to speak, was the miracle of Lascaux. I had to hire some players to premiere it with me. And it was a combination of friends, fellow faculty, but also some folks from the community I didn't know when I did that. Cause it was right when I started at Frost and uh, Sam Hyken's wife uh, had a um, uh, Yael, Yael uh, Kleiman Hyken, uh, who's a virtuoso violist in her own right. And I'm fortunate to play in New Deco and some other groups with her. She had a, um, uh, a string quartet which included some former members of the New World Symphony that were my colleagues. So I hired them to premiere The Miracle of Lascaux with me. And from that, there were a conversation got started that, hey, there's this new group forming. They're going to have a meeting about it. And I went to this meeting and Sam Hyken and Giacomo pitched what they were trying to do. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe this. This is so what I, I'm so interested in this. And what they're doing is, they basically what I'll, if I could sum it up is that they're showcasing the virtuosity, the depth and complexity of types of music that maybe folks from the classical world don't realize are as complex and have depth and complexity. You try playing, you know, some of the hip hop beats or some of the electronic beats and you actually have to play it from notation and get it <laughs> right. This stuff's complex. Um, I saw on your website that you played with Kishibashi. He's incredible. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, that's what's great is on our album, the first new deco album, there's a bassoon solo and I am the antichrist or what is it? Antichrist, the, the song that says I am the antichrist to you. And there's a beautiful bassoon solo midway through it that Sam orchestrated. And that's one of the, you know, most popular streamed um, tracks from that album. We play with Kishibashi, Wycliffe, Jean, Jacob Collier, um, um, Oh, PJ Morton, uh, Corey Henry, uh, we're this group next week as new to me, Larkin Poe that we're playing with. We just played, we just, um, gosh, uh, Stephen Marley. I mean, and what's amazing about each one of these guys, Bilal, each one of these people they bring in often, unless it's like Wycliffe John or something, I don't know that we play with Ben Folds more than once. Like I'd never heard of Kishibashi before because I, just my mind wasn't open to it, but without fail, everybody that Sam and Giacomo have brought in, I'm just in awe of uh, Magda Gianniku. You look Jacob Collier. I mean, he's like Mozart. Seriously. Jacob Collier is incredible. And he's sitting there at the piano and, you know, he knows what everybody's playing at any given time, even though it's his music that somebody else has arranged. He can sit there and be like, okay, you know, second trombone. And he plays it. And he's like, I think that would be better if we paired it with this and we do it like this. And he's sitting at the piano, he's doing it and he's harmonizing and singing over it. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is so incredible. So New Deco has given me that, you know, and, and actually my rhythm, I, I, I thought I had good rhythm until I joined New Deco. And I lear I've learned, I mean, I've learned new ways of looking at rhythm. And I feel like I see things in a different way after five years of playing with them. So it was always my intention to hire New Deco as my um, backup group for the album. And what really worked out really well was that New Deco was doing their first album. And I had approached the leadership of New Deco about using uh, a chamber, even more chamber version, because I mean, I had limited funds with the internal grant that I had an even more chamber version of New Deco to, to record Last Go with me. And the thing that surprised me more than, I mean, it was one of the greatest uh, shocks of my life was that Sam and Giacomo approached me and said, well, look, we've got the hit factory Criteria Studios rented for 12 hours a day or whatever it is. It's costing us, you know, it's a lot. This is where, by the way, this is where Eric Clapton and Derek and the Dominoes recorded Layla. This is where wow. uh, this is where Hotel California by the Eagles was recorded. This is where a lot of albums, this is Criteria Studios in Miami. And so it's got a, a real rock and roll pedigree. And they said, you know, we, we're not obviously rehearsing and recording 12 hours a day. You want the off time in the studio? And I'm like, yeah, I do. So my album was recorded at the same time, right? Well, that that track from my album, it's five five tracks, but uh, five uh, movements was recorded in the off sessions from New Deco's main thing. So I mean, I was playing solo for my album and then in New Deco, and um, it took my album a little bit longer to get together and release than theirs because I recorded in four different cities with four different groups, and then there's all the logistics of mixing and mastering. Wow you know, four groups played in different spaces. But New Deco has been really the bright spot of of the of my playing these days. Um in that I mean we did a Fiddler's Tale by um uh Wynton Marsalis. It's it's his take on the soldier's tale. Uh and it's but it's like a jazz uh version with uh trombone, trumpet, uh clarinet, bassoon, violin and percussion. And it's it's so it's one of the hardest things I've ever played in my life. 
And so we're doing not just this classical crossover suites of, of hip hop and, and pop music and electronic. We also are looking out there what's already out there. I mean, Alarm Will Sound has put a lot of great new repertoire into the world and we're able to pick that repertoire up and adapt it for new deco ensemble, often with even some of the players from Alarm Will Sound or the com- we're lucky to have the composers present. They have commissioning. Yeah, I, what else can I say about it? The other thing that's great about playing in new deco is it's so satisfying when we could have live audiences to finish playing something and to have a room of you know two or 300 people. We play pretty small venues, leap to their feet screaming, you know, instead of the golf clap. That was nice. Beethoven. You know, instead it's like I've had I've had the experience in New Deco where the people because we sit, we're like in a black box theater really close. They do the selfie while I'm playing. And you're like leaning in and you're like trying to get away. And it's just it's so great. And it's some of the most virtuosic music I've ever played. Um, I, I largely the bassoon in a lot of the arrangement occupies a supporting role, even more so sometimes than orchestra, because he uses it a lot to sort of reinforce the bass guitar or something like that. But then every once in a while, it'll break out in a way that's terrifying. And the other thing is, is a lot of the stuff we play, let's just say it's not always idiomatic to the instrument. (laughs) And my personal challenge is not to complain about it. My personal challenge is like, I can play this on the bassoon and I'm going to, and it's going to be awesome. Yeah, we had Titus Underwood on recently and he said, dope art is dope art. And we all benefit when we stop having these barriers around what we think is sophisticated, worthy, high, low, and that a lot of us in the classical community hold ourselves back by these self-imposed perceptions that we have. I couldn't agree more. And I would challenge anybody who has that perception still. If, if you could be the most recent person who's kind of blown me away that way is Wycliffe Jean. I knew of him that he played in the Fugees and they had some hit songs, but you know, I've never interacted. And when he comes in and he's sitting in the middle of the thing, and we obviously we do the things that are his arrangements, but then he also will break out and do his own thing in the middle of the show. And you're just like front row witness to it. And you see him playing the guitar on his lap and singing and improvising. And you're just like, yeah, we need to kind of, we, we need to recognize and chill and like enjoy what, what else out there. Um, honestly, some, here's the thing I'll say. Often I find sometimes folks who are coming from either the commercial pop jazz side of things, their ears are better for harmony and dictation and those kind of things than a lot of folks who came from our, well, I'm assuming we have a collective background. So if that doesn't, if that doesn't impress you, I mean, that's, then I ask whoever you is, whoever I'm talking to, to re-examine because that's really impressive to me. What is your advice for young musicians who aspire to have a career like yours? So if you're talking about specifically college teaching, um, I would say there's a lot of people wanting to do that now. And um, I guess there always was, but I see a lot of folks who kind of think it's going to be a fallback or easy, easy or something. And I'm like, I actually think it's emerging as quite the opposite because we have so many people getting terminal degrees and fewer and fewer positions. And so what I would say is, I think you, First of all, you do have to be virtuosic at your instrument. You're asking somebody to hire you as an expert at your instrument. There's just no substitute for that. But that's not enough. Also, 
earning all the degrees is not enough because there I've sat on a ton of committees at this point. And I can tell you there's an endless supply of people with all the right degrees. What distinguishes people are very are a lot of things. And I think um, you have to have one of those things to go with all that. And that is like, and in both of your case, you've come up with this podcast, for example, that I think everybody at this point, we know who you are. You've done this. This is significant. Look at what Yuni Wong's done this last summer with the national bassoon meetup. She provided a really important service for people. And now we all, I mean, I knew who she was before, but look what she did. Look at what Karen Miller's doing with um, the Bassoonists Without Borders. You have to have a project, a thing you've done, or you have to have won an orchestra audition or, or made the finals or won a competition or wrote an important book or something. It can't just be, hey, I play the instrument well and hey, I've got all the degrees. And the other thing I'd say is, you know, don't uh, underestimate the value of connection, friendship. And I don't mean, you know, I know people like to network and that kind of thing, and that's great. But what I think is more valuable is genuine connection to people. And the way that happens is through, for me, was just being a part of different summer festivals, being part of the New World Symphony. Then those people are in your life and they're your friends. And yes, it is networking, but it doesn't feel that way because, and, and the thing I didn't do well when I was younger, even kind of when I was in new world, but that actually helped loosen me up a little bit is I was never really good about the hang. I never, I, I was always a little uncomfortable with it. And only as I got older and more comfortable and more relaxed and who I am, would people go, Hey, we're going to this place afterwards that I start saying yes. And I wish I would have said yes at, you know, 20, 21, 22, like just like went and then talked about something that's not bassoon, which I have a hard time with because I love talking about bassoon and making this genuine connection with people. And so I think that that's it. You've got to be around. You've got to be somebody that people like to be around. You've got to do something. Uh, and I don't want to tell people what that something is because <clears throat> sometimes I fear um, I'm not going to say what it is because I don't want to give away this young person's project. But I had a, a person in one of my classes tell me about this really off the wall idea about what they wanted to do with an orchestra, an idea they had for an orchestra that I can't tell you because somebody will steal it. It's so good. And they were embarrassed to kind of tell me. And I'm like, oh my God, if you did that, if you could pull it off, that would be your thing. And your thing probably doesn't come from something your teacher told you to do. It's something you discovered for yourself and you're passionate about and you work really hard at it. And I think that's how you with that added to a good education and the right credentials add up to the kind of career I have. The other thing I would, the advice I would give people is don't give your music making over to the equipment. You are a musician. And that's one of the ways I comfort myself when a reed's not going well, or my bassoon is a little out of whack. That bassoon and that reed is not me. The music's in my head. And I can pour that music through whatever medium I'm playing. I could, I think it's important that people do play some music away from their bassoon. I hope people do play a little piano, even if you're not good at it. I hope people will sing, even if they're not good at it. Hope folks will, will try to play a little percussion, even if they're not good at it. Because when the music then becomes a sound in your head, the audiation, and then you can apply it to anything. When you come back to bassoon, which you've trained so hard to master... It, it it enhances it and it really helps me get through moments where I'm, I'm afraid my read won't work or I'm, uh, you know, I'm insecure about an entrance or something. I just did a recording session yesterday for 
like a holiday concert here, all socially distanced with masks. I even wore a mask when I played. And, you know, I haven't played in public with people except for one other time in the last seven months. And I just had to think about like the sound in my head. If I thought about the fact that I haven't played in seven months or that my reads haven't been tested with other people, which we know how bad that is. You think your reads great until you play it with other folks. But because I can hear the music in my head, I've played it as a nutcracker. So I've played it a lot of times and just trust it, trust that it'll come out because I'm a musician. I'm a, I'm somebody who this music belongs to me and not heckle Fox Puchner, whatever name is on that stick of wood I'm holding in my hand, you know? So that's what I would say. Um, and just be, be, be awesome. You gotta, you gotta be good. That's the thing I I'll say. I mean, I don't want to make anybody feel bad about themselves, but there is no substitute for having some mastery and if you if you can establish yourself then people will listen to what you have to say i think about matt ruggiero and his intellectual side i mean he he his ticket to play was the fact that he was a good bassoonist and then we all discovered all that other stuff about him now it doesn't mean that if he had not discovered that he was a scholar early on that he couldn't have gone that way but we all know who he is because of he had a distinguished position and then was able to share his knowledge so i hope this is helpful and thank you We hope you enjoyed that interview. Don't forget to join us for our next episode, which will be episode 100. I I cannot believe believe it. it. Wow. And you can (laughs) find out about that episode on our social media. Follow us on places you get your podcasts. You'll be number one to know. Who's coming up? This is the best closer we've ever done. Ever. (laughs) Our next guest for episode 100 of Double Read Dish is Associate Principal Oboe of the Los Angeles Philharmonic, Marian Kuzik. Jackie, it's definitely time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads with your best good luck color. And throw your bad luck color in the trash can that 2020 belongs in.